Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, and you're listening to The Common. Data reporter for The Great Divide at the Boston Globe, Chris Huffaker, welcome to The Common. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a you know, long-time listener, first-time uh, appearance, so it's very exciting Look to be here. Look at this. This is wonderful. I love it. I love it. Yeah, me too. Well, Chris, we had to have you on because you have a very interesting story. It is about the requests to remove books from schools and libraries, and the school libraries, I should say, throughout Massachusetts. You found that nearly 70 different books were challenged in schools by parents, residents, and others over the last five years. And these books typically deal with gender, sexuality, and race, what some would call hot-button topics. And, um, you know, I read your piece One incident that stuck out, uh, which actually took place last month, the police in Western Massachusetts were called to a middle school to investigate a complaint about, and I quote, concerning illustrations in a graphic novel about gender and sexual identity. I want to start here with this incident. Is this a typical scenario um, in Massachusetts school districts when it comes to certain books? Uh, It is in some ways typical in that the book that was challenged is frequently challenged. Uh And for the same sort of reasons, the language of the complaint is common. It's Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. It's a a graphic memoir, like you said. Okay. But it is the only case I know of where the response was to call the police about it. Okay. Okay. Now let's zoom out because you looked at all 291 state school districts for this story. Yeah. You know, what else did you learn about how Massachusetts districts handle book challenges and and things related to that? Yeah. So just to clarify, we're looking just at the traditional public school districts. Mm -hmm. So not charter school districts, which Mm -hmm. are all also public and also not like the regional vocational technical schools. What we found, like you said, some 70 books, dozens of districts said they had gotten some sort of challenge. We did a mix of a, a survey and public records requests. A lot of the books are books that deal with race, gender, sexuality, very much the same sort of books that have been targeted by book banning campaigns around the country. Mm-hmm. We've heard a lot about what's happening in Florida or Texas, other areas. There's multiple districts have removed old children's books with racist imagery. So we've mm-hmm. seen Tintin books and Dr. Seuss books have been mm-hmm. taken out of school libraries. And then there's a category of complaint that, the best we can tell, it is, you know, parents were like, this is really violent and my kid is young and maybe they shouldn't be reading this. How does someone challenge a book in the first place? What's the process there? Yeah, there's there's a, a variety of ways. Um, a lot of these districts have a formal process. Some of those processes are decades old. Some of them they put in place in the last few years in response to this recent wave of, you know, attempted challenges where you have to, you know, submit a formal form that says, this is the book. This is why I want it removed. This is my connection. But we also got a lot of, you know, just a 
a parent emailed their kid's teacher and said, I'm concerned about this, or they, you know, called the superintendent and said, I'm concerned about this. And what happens if someone challenges a book and they're successful? What does the, the district do then? A lot of them, this process, they'll go to a review committee that maybe has a, you know, a school leader, a couple teachers, maybe a librarian, maybe a community member. They'll consider what was the book supposed to do? What's the complaint? Is it reasonable? And then probably the superintendent gets final say. You know, we found 10 districts that have done some sort of restriction. And there's, I think, three main categories. There's a handful where they were like, we're taking this book out of our libraries. There's a couple where they're, for these books, you need to get parental permission to check it out or to assign it. And then there's a bunch where, and this is maybe more familiar, it's just we're going to shelve it for older kids. So maybe we have a library that is shared by the elementary school and the middle school. We're going to put it in the middle school. How have you seen communities respond to books being challenged in their school districts? In the wake of this story, which came out uh, you know, last week, there have been a couple districts that are mentioned in it where there's been some talk in those districts. And actually, one of them, since we published, has decided we're going to put that book back on the shelves because okay. there has been such an uproar in the community uh, with students, with parents, with other community members about this book being removed. This is um, a collection of poems called Woke, A Young Poet's Call to Justice mm -hmm. in North Attleboro. Early this week, the superintendent uh, said, we're going to put it back on the shelves. Um, we've heard how you feel about us having removed this book. So with that, did you talk to any administrators or teachers or, or anyone else connected to this issue to kind of get a sense of how they were observing these requests? Yeah. So one person I talked to was Andrea Fiorillo at the Mass Library Association. She's the co-chair of their Intellectual Freedom Committee. And she has done a lot of looking at the, the public library side of this. She talked about when you're a librarian, you are trained so much in intellectual freedom is important, access to books, anti-censorship. But when it's a school district, the person making the decision is not always going to be a librarian. It might be a superintendent or a school committee who have a bunch of other things yeah. they're dealing with. They have conflicting interests. They're like, maybe, you know, I just don't want to deal with this problem and it's not the main part of my job. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to move on. Most of the time, based on the records we've gotten, they do a, you know, a, a polite but firm, no, we're not getting rid of that book. If you want to talk to your kid about it, talk to your kid about it. Mm -hmm. But we respect the educational training of our teacher, our librarian, and uh, we think it's right to have this this book. But, you know, Fiorillo was saying that the risk for school districts is, you know, that they aren't coming necessarily from that same perspective that a librarian is. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow on point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. And we're back with more from Chris Huffaker of the Boston Globe. What districts had the most book challenges? On the one hand, the biggest districts in the state, Boston, Springfield, with most students, most students of color, most low-income students, Mm -hmm. they all reported no challenges whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, They said, you know, we embrace diversity, this is important to us, and they did not say any parents had done this. On the other hand, you know, these 10 districts that have restricted some books, these are mostly suburban districts. They're whiter than the state as a whole. They have fewer low-income students. So they, you know, maybe have fewer kids of color who would need potentially to see themselves represented more. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones that are taking away those opportunities to see that representation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know more about how the current political climate is connected by this. You know, we're we're in a time where LGBTQ folks are targeted through legislation. There's a a continued attack on so-called progressive ideas in education. How is this all playing out in Massachusetts when it comes to these uh, book challenges? Yeah, you're you're 100%, I think, right in pointing to that nationally... LGBTQ people are under more pressure maybe than they've been in a few years. And, and there's a kind of a, a national political movement. There's a backlash, say, to, to progressive ideas. And I, I think Massachusetts is just a part of that. We, we think of Massachusetts as such a progressive state, but there's a lot of people in Massachusetts. Every state has people of every political persuasion. Mm-hmm. There's going to be enough of them that if there is a national movement within, you know, the conservative movement— we see in Florida to restrict access to books about race, about gender, about sexuality for kids, there's going to be people in Massachusetts who want to do the same thing Mm -hmm. and make those efforts to do that. I think where Massachusetts differs because of the overall politics of the state is how the state responds to that. And so whereas, you know, in Florida, they have passed legislation that makes it easier to get rid of books or even, you know, effectively bans books about, you know, that, that 
teach students about race and racism or about gender and sexuality. In Massachusetts, the legislature is considering legislation to do the opposite and make it harder to get books removed from schools. Um, there's a particular bill that they're discussing that, to Furiello's point, would make school librarians and teachers the arbiters of whether, you know, to keep books based on their expertise as librarians and teachers, not based on any personal or political views. Right, right. So one thing that comes to mind as we're having this discussion, especially with the events that happen, you know, just across the river in Harvard, right, is this idea of academic freedom. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I spoke to one person who I think um, maybe can shed light on that some. That's Sonia Douglas. She's a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University who studies race and education. And what what she called it to me, she just said, this is un-American to be Mm -hmm. trying to remove books like this and clearly politically motivated in terms of what specific types of books are being banned. So it, it really comes back to, you know, fundamental American values, a freedom of speech, freedom of expression, having access to different people's stories. And I think it's interesting, she said, this should be an opportunity when you get these challenges and you are a, a teacher or a school leader, this is an opportunity to jump on that and say, let's talk about this story and why it's important and why we want to tell kids this history or share this expression uh, with them. What are you looking out for in the future as it relates to this issue. This first story is trying to cast a really broad net. Here's basic level, what challenges we see everywhere. But that shouldn't be the last story. And there are there's more reporting to be done in all of these dozens of districts where people have tried to restrict books or have succeeded in it. Already we've seen North Attleboro, there is follow-up reporting. They've reversed the removal already. But I've heard from other local reporters and members of communities in individual towns that say, you found there was this attempt. What more can you tell me? And I say, this is what they've told me, but be great. Learn more about that. Ask the district. Let's see what is driving that, what they've done. Um, And I think this is, you know, an opportunity to to dig deeper in, in all these different towns. And I'd love to see, you know, people do that. Well, Chris, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We really, really appreciate you coming to The Common. And also, thank you for listening. Well, of course, it's a, a, a great podcast, an important part of my morning routine. That's data reporter for The Great Divide at the Boston Globe, Chris Huffaker. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Common. If you want to get in touch with us and let us know your favorite band book, hit us up on Instagram at WBURTheCommon or send us an email at thecommon at WBUR.org. And now it is that time for me to let you know that The Common is produced by Caitlin Harrop and Franny Monahan with help from CCU. It's mixed by Emily Jankowski, Matt Reed, and Paul Vitkus. And it's edited by Samantha Joshi and Ben Brock Johnson with help from Amy Gorell. And our theme music is me from Hisu. And from the newsroom of WBUR, I'm your host, Daryl C. Murphy. I'll talk to you soon.